Our scripture reading today is Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the, fruit from the tree in the, that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is the word of the Lord for us. We live in a broken world. The reason we live in a broken world is because of sin. It started with Adam and Eve. They ate the forbidden fruit. You know the story. It is what we're going to talk about together this morning. But you know the story. They ate the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. And humanity's been living under the curse ever since. And of course, part of what we learn from this is that we have a spiritual enemy. We have one who is trying to lure us away from Christ and tempt us to disobey God. And as pessimistic as it may sound, he's been pretty successful. We live in a broken world. And for each one of us here today, we've fallen prey to the schemes of our spiritual enemy. You know, we're not just pointing fingers at Adam and Eve going, thanks, you messed it up for all of us. But we, we recognize and confess and admit for each and every one of us, we've fallen prey to the schemes of the enemy. We've sinned. We've done wrong. But praise God that even in the beginning of time, he was unfolding his master plan of salvation. That we wouldn't be forever doomed and forever cursed, but that we can be saved. We're in a sermon series through the book of Genesis called In the Beginning. And we are, by the way, encouraging you to read through the book of Genesis this year. We're going to take it in several different parts, but we are encouraging you. And as a church family, we are setting that goal together. Let's read through the book of Genesis. Part of the reason that's important, I should say this, is we're not able from the pulpit to preach through each and every verse. Okay, so we're, we're doing Genesis, but we're, we're really going to have to pick out some of the stories and pericopes, sections of scripture to teach on. We can't go through each and every verse, but we're encouraging us as a church family to read through the book of Genesis this year. This morning, we're looking at chapters 3 and 4. In fact, if you have your Bible with you, we'll soon be turning there. Go ahead and get it out. Genesis 3 and 4. This is Adam and Eve, and they're called to carry out God's mandate to care for the earth. But Satan enters the story. He entices them to rebel against God. And again, as I said, here, here's what we discover when we look at this story, that even in their failure... Even when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they ate the forbidden fruit. It's kind of one of those moments where you go, you had one job. <laughs> There's one tree that you have to avoid. You had one job and you blew it. Even in their failure, God continues his pursuit of them. In his relentless love, he always gives humanity the opportunity to confess, to repent, to turn back to him. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we study this passage. 
My name is John. I am thrilled that you're with us today. I'm praying that through our time together, your heart and your home grow stronger in the Lord. Let's jump right in. Genesis chapter 3. A new character enters the story in verse 1. It's, it's called the serpent. The serpent. And the serpent is described as crafty. And we quickly begin to realize that this character, the serpent, is an enemy of God and is really trying to thwart humans and lead them really in a rebellion of God. And so we've just walked through creation. We've seen all the beauty of what God has created in the natural order and God called it good. But now all of a sudden we come to this stark reality that evil has somehow entered into God's creation. I would put it this way. We often talk about the sin of Adam and Eve as the fall. The fall of humankind. But really, there was a fall before the fall. There was a fall before the fall. The book of Revelation identifies this serpent and tells us that it is indeed Satan. And so we read Genesis, but we do so through the lens of the entirety of the canon of Scripture, including Revelation and other places that tell us about our spiritual enemy. Satan, we understand from the Scriptures, was created as part of the heavenly host or we could probably use the word angel. Like he was a created being, a celestial being, part of the heavenly host, but then he was cast down because of his pride. This is a really fascinating study. We're not going to go too in-depth, but I'll touch on it real briefly. One of the places we learn about this is Ezekiel 28. I'll read for us verse 17. Here's what the Lord says. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty. Again, this is God talking about Satan. And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor, so I threw you to the earth. Jesus confirms that this happened in Luke 10, 18, when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. When Satan fell from heaven, by the way, we know from Revelation chapter 12, that he took with him a third of the other angels, the other heavenly beings. He took a third of those with him. That we would now understand to be demons. We'll probably leave that for now. Because there's a lot to be. There's a lot to be explored there. In terms of. uh, Who is Satan? When was he created? How did all of this happen? Um, But I I would say this. As we get into Genesis chapter 3. It's probably better for us to understand this. Not as snakes are all the devil. (laughs) You know. Some of you. uh, You dislike snakes. Anyone in here willing to say. You have a fear of. Or a a great dislike of snakes. It's a very common uh, experience that people have. Snakes are somehow creepy. And we're not going to get too into that. In terms of the spiritual meetings. But a lot of people think snakes are really scary. And kind of creepy. But really I think as we read this story. um, We recognize that it's. It's Satan. It's not just this uh, animal that God created. It's, it's Satan. And he's, 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 he's manifesting himself. He's appearing as the, as the serpent. Um, but here, here's the point. Satan is on the earth. And we, again, know this from our study of the scriptures. Uh, Job is another book that gives us some insight into his activity and behavior. Um, Job chapter 1, verse 6 tells us he, he comes into the presence of the Lord. The Lord's like, what have you been doing? He's like, I've been roaming to and fro on the earth. So we know something about what is he, what is he doing? He's, he's roaming to and fro on the earth. And again, his goal is to thwart people's connection with God. He's out to get us. The Bible says that Satan is the father of lies. When he whispers, when he speaks, when he communicates, it's untruth. Sometimes it's half-truth. 
Sometimes it's mixed with. He, he has a way of, when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, he had a way of misquoting scripture to Jesus. Like, well, doesn't the Bible say this? He's the father of lies. And we see in a very real way, very dramatic way in, in Genesis 3, him having a conversation with Eve. And so he enters into conversation with Eve. Just strikes up, you know, the chit-chat that happens. Like, hey, uh, let's talk about some things. And he deceives her. And she breaks the one prohibition that God had given. God had said, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's Genesis 2, verse 17. And if we look closely there, in, uh, we're in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. We see that Satan begins with questioning God's word. He still has the same tactics today in 2023. Questioning God's word as the authority. So he says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Like questioning. Calling into suspicion. What, did God say this? Now, by the way, this is not what God said. God didn't say you may not eat from any tree in the garden. He said, eat from any of the trees in the garden. Eat from all of the trees except for the one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that one. There's one prohibition. If we jump to verse 4 then, we see that he attacks God's ways. He says, you will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, verse 5, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so what he's doing is he's the father of lies and he's planting seeds in her mind about the goodness of God. Questioning, is God's word really true? Is God's word really authoritative? What was it that God even said? And now questioning God's ways. Wait, God, I mean, he's essentially getting her to the point where she's probably questioning like, Listen, God just wants to keep you from really enjoying life. <laughs> Again, Genesis chapter 3, and it's so applicable, and, and uh, it's so easy to see it playing out in your life and mine today. Where we begin to question the goodness of God. Does God just want to keep me from enjoying life? And so what does Eve do? She gives in to temptation. She's like, you know what, you're right. That fruit looks really tasty. And what was it that God said? And why does God want to keep me from the life that I really want and need that's going to make me truly happy? So she gives in and she eats the fruit. Let's look closely at verse 6 to see what happened in the heart and mind of Eve that so often happens in the heart and mind of us. So Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. When the woman saw... That the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So the fruit that caused these two to sin. And we don't know what the fruit was, by the way. It's often in our culture characterized as an apple. We don't know what the particular fruit was. But it had three characteristics that are mentioned here. First, it was good for food. In other words, it was tasty it was delicious. It was perfectly ripe. It was mouth-watering. And so often, we want to gratify our flesh with the things that taste good, with the things that feel good, with the things that sound good. Second thing about the fruit was it was pleasing to the eye. It looked beautiful. 
There was something magnetic about it that was captivating the shape and the color and the texture and the smoothness. I mean, it was just begging Eve to be plucked off the tree. It was calling her name tenderly. Pick me. Eat me. I'll tell you a story about... um, There was a summer that I worked as an intern at a church in the San Joaquin Valley in California. The area there, I was in Reedley, California, and it is called the fruit basket of the nation. The reason that it's called that is because it produces more fruit than any any place else in our country. And so there are just fields and vineyards, and it's just, it's breathtaking, it's beautiful with all the, like, grapes and nectarines and citruses and plums and all that. So I spent a summer there, and I learned upon arriving that when you are traveling and happen to be going by or near or through a field or a vineyard, totally acceptable to sample some of the fruit. Farmers are not going to get upset. Uh, They have no problem with that. In fact, it's probably only going to drum up more business for them if you do that. So, So I was informed of that. It's like, hey, uh, it's no problem. You're out on a walk. You see some fruit. You're, you're totally uh, able. Pick it. Enjoy it. That's fine. Um, now, don't go out for a picnic and set up, your, you know, set up your tent and just start eating. But So I went out for a jog, and I'm running past these fields, and I, I'm like Eve in the Garden of Eden going, oh, my goodness. I don't think I've ever seen plums that large. Oh, my goodness. What did they say is in season right now? I think it might be those nectarines. And so, I mean, it didn't last long. And I, I just had to, I had to just, uh, you know what? I need, I need a little sugar rush. I'm going to, I'm going to stop. So I stopped, pick some fruit and eat it. All right, here we go. I'm, I'm back on the jog. And again, it's like, I cannot help myself here. So I stop, I pick another, run a little more. Now my stomach is kind of hurting. I'm trying to run, but I, I do best with a, with an empty stomach. So what ends up happening is I probably eat four or five, six pieces of fruit. <laughs> Have a total stomach ache. I can't finish my run. At this point, I'm just like sampling the wares of the fruit and had to have to walk back to my host house. I think that's what Eve was experiencing here. It was pleasing to the eye. It was, pick me, eat me. I'm delicious. You can't, you can't go without me. So there's a third characteristic mentioned about the fruit in Genesis 3 and verse 6. And it's that it Eve was tempted because it was desirable for gaining wisdom, right? I mean, there's something special about this fruit. And so Eve is considering like, hmm, eating this fruit is going to cause me to be enlightened in some way. Like when I, when I partake of this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be more important, maybe more noticed, maybe more significant, more valuable. If I have that, I'll be somebody. I'll be special. Now, all of this ties into the teaching we have in the New Testament in 1 John chapter 2. In verse 16, we learn that all sin stems from one of three places. Here's what John says. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, those are the three areas, comes not from the Father, but from the world. When Satan tempts you, he does so in at least one of, perhaps multiple of these ways. And so, again, he's the father of lies. He says, do it. It's going to feel good. Hmm. Okay. The lust of the flesh. He says, watch that. It's going to fulfill you. Lust of the eyes. He says, go there or, or buy that or do those things because you deserve it. 
After all, you're special. And isn't life about you and your happiness? Lies. But what happens when we look at the words of Jesus? He says stuff like, pick up your cross and follow me. He says stuff like, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. So Satan hit Adam and Eve with all three of those. And they fell. They fell hard. We call this the fall of humanity, right? And to be clear, Eve eats the fruit first. She then offers the fruit to Adam. He's, it, it says right there, he is standing right next to her. He knows fully that he's disobeying. And it's a moment for me where I go, come on, man. They didn't simultaneously go, one, two, three. Eve ate the fruit. She messed up. Adam is there, and this is a colossal failure on Adam's part. And there is something here for, for men. There is something here that's, that's powerful, that's sobering. Come on, man. Maybe a way you've not looked at this passage before. I, w- I want to point something out that's really interesting. As you read through this passage in Genesis chapter 3, it always refers to Eve, not as Eve. Her name isn't mentioned. It refers to her as the woman. The woman did this, and the woman did that, and the woman spoke with the serpent, and the woman tasted the fruit. And then even when they're caught in their sin, and and Adam is blaming, he says, no, the woman that you put here with me. It goes on and on and on, until after their sin, and their confrontation with God, and the curse that God puts on them. It's only after that... So it's in, it's in verse 20. If we're in Genesis chapter 3, it's all the way down in verse 20 when Adam named his wife Eve. It says because she would become the mother of all the living. Now we know Adam had been working. Adam had been busy. He was tending in the garden. He had dominion over all of the creatures, right? He had taken time. I want to point this out. He had taken time to name all of the animals. He had given names to all of the animals. Why did he not show some attentiveness to Eve? We know he's a guy that's responsible, he's diligent, he's thorough. He went all the way from aardvarks to zebras, giving names. But it seems like here he fails. And part of what Adam did wrong is he failed to rightly prioritize. Again, there's a challenge in here, especially for us men. He didn't speak into Eve's life. He didn't help her become rooted in her identity. And she started talking with snakes. The women in your life need your care. They need your attention. Your wife, your daughters. And I want to be clear about this, that that your work is not more valuable than your marriage. And for every guy in here, every married man in here would go, yeah, I know, and I, and I say that, but does your life show it? That your work is not more valuable than your marriage. Where was Adam when Eve's heart needed cultivating, when her identity was still in limbo? She'd not been given a name yet. She's just the woman. Where was Adam? He was probably working. 
Don't stand by. Don't vacate. Step into your role. Keep your priorities in check. And I want to say this very clearly. As we're on the topic and I'm talking with men right now. Your first priority is your faith and your walk with Christ. Like that is your top priority. Loving Jesus. Being known as a child of God. That is that your relationship with Jesus is your top priority. But how often we misprioritize. We miss the mark. We fail. A colossal failure that we see on Adam's part. And we have the same tendencies. Your faith should be evidently, obviously, clearly more important than your hobbies. Same for your family and your children. Your children are more important than your fantasy football team. Do they know that? Do they see that? We get all kinds of priorities out of whack. Your health is more important than your video games. <laughs> like, like if you are addicted to playing video games and you continue to play those video games, staying up way too late and not getting enough sleep day in and day out, you're sabotaging yourself. Your priority is in the wrong place. I'm not against playing video games. I just know that in talking with guys, especially younger guys, yeah, I stayed up until 3 a.m., so I'm dragging this morning. And you do that over and over and over again, or on the weekends, it's, it's 10, 12 plus hours. You're misplacing your priorities. Get your priorities in check. And as it relates to the people in your life, tune in. Tune in to what's happening in their lives. Keep watch, stand guard, and don't let snakes in your home and in your family. Adam failed colossally. And man, I just wonder about this. And I've spent a lot of time just kind of pondering and mulling over and asking questions. One of the best ways to read scripture, by the way, is just ask questions of it. And write down those questions. What are the things that jump out? What are the things that are confusing? What are the things you notice? I just wonder what it would have meant for Eve if she knew her identity. If Adam had spoken into her life and her heart. You are Eve. You are like the mother of all things that are living. From you is vibrancy and life and vitality. What would have happened if Eve knew her identity? She knew she was loved and celebrated and honored when that snake slithered up to her. Maybe she would have said, get lost, buster. I don't need you. I don't know you. But maybe she was feeling like an afterthought. Maybe it was nice that someone was paying some attention to her. Instead of feeling overlooked... And unappreciated? What would have happened here if she had been honored and encouraged and loved and celebrated? I think she would have been less interested in talking with this serpent. Colossal failure on the part of Adam. And although you and I are, we're also prone to sin and we have some of these same tendencies, I want to hear us Hear this clearly this morning. Don't commit the same sin. 
of misplaced priorities. So we see then what happens after Adam and Eve both fail and eat the fruit. Verse 7. They rebel against God and it says the eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now part of what's so jarring about that. What's so startling is just a few verses back. It would be about eight verses back. It's the last verse in chapter 2 says they were naked and felt no shame. Life was good. They were walking in connection with one another and with God, but now things are different. Now they have a broken relationship with God. They've disobeyed him. And then it's sort of comical here how Adam and Eve try to hide from God. (laughs) It's like, maybe he won't find us. (laughs) The Lord finds them, of course. And he asks them if they ate the forbidden fruit. And their response, this is in verses 12 and 13, by the way, Genesis chapter 3. Their response is pointing fingers. Adam blames Eve. The woman you put here with me. And really, he's kind of blaming God there too, isn't he? He didn't say the woman did it. He said the woman, the one you put here with me. Like, God, you're the one. You kind of caused all this. (laughs) And then Eve, of course, blames the serpent. And no one takes responsibility. No one says, we had one job. You gave us one prohibition, which was don't eat the fruit from this particular tree. And guess what we did, God? We ate from that tree. Don't we do the same thing? (laughs) When we mess up, and we know we've messed up, we try to cover it. You know, they're sewing together fig leaves. Later on, we see God gives them a little more proper clothing. Like, no, the, the, the fig leaves are not for you to wear. You don't see people walking around in clothing made from leaves, do you? <laughs> so it was a terrible idea to cover themselves with the fig leaves. Better than poison ivy or something of like that, I guess. But, <laughs> like, like, that's not, like, we do the same thing when we, we use these cheap, poor, wrong substitutes. Like, we're going to just cover this up. We're going to sweep it under the rug. We're going to put on the fig leaf. Then everything's going to be okay. Or we do like they did and we hide. Like maybe God won't see me here. Maybe God won't find me here. And we certainly do the blaming piece, don't we? We certainly like to point fingers and say, but she did this to me and so that's why I did that thing. Or that's just how, it, that's, those are industry standards. And so it might seem a little like you're falsifying, being deceitful, doing wrong, being dishonest, but like that's the way it works. So if I want to succeed and thrive in this field, in this work, in what I do, then I have to do those things. It's not my fault that I've sinned. It's someone else's fault. We do the same thing. We live in a sin-sick world. Like we still live in a world that has the effects of Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit. And each and every one of us, each day, faces the same temptations that they faced. Those same temptations. Those same lies from the serpent. Questioning God's goodness and questioning God's word. And so I want to point out a few things this morning with the time that we've got left. The first is that it's not a sin to be tempted. I want to be clear on this. As we talk about temptation, temptation in and of itself is not a sin. It's not wrong. We all face temptation. We're tempted in all kinds of different ways, right? We're tempted to use words in ways that hurt others and tear others down. We're tempted to hold grudges, to harbor bitterness. 
we're tempted to be dishonest. We're tempted to kind of make those shortcuts. I think of our young people, high school students, college age students, who live in a culture that glamorizes alcohol use and drug use. We face temptations at every turn. Temptations of sexual immorality, of gluttony, of materialism, of pride. But I want to point this out this morning as we talk about temptation, that it's not wrong to be tempted. It's wrong to stray from God's commands and enter into sin. When we're tempted, the scriptures give us this great promise that God will provide a way out, that we can choose to honor him. This is a teaching from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. In other words, what Adam and Eve faced, what people have for centuries, for millennia, that's what you're facing. It's nothing new. And God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. What a great promise from God's word. We're not immune from facing temptation. It lurks at every corner, but God provides a way out. It is not a sin to be tempted. Part of the reason I can say that is because our Lord Jesus was tempted. And yet he didn't sin. Matthew chapter four has Jesus in the wilderness. And guess who comes along? Satan, that old serpent. And Jesus, by the way, in Matthew chapter four, he's been fasting for 40 days. Now, I think you might be hungry when it comes to lunchtime today, but you don't know hunger like fasting for 40 days hunger. He's in the wilderness. He's been fasting for 40 days. And so what does the devil do? He offers him bread. The lust of the flesh. Just satisfy that craving. Just eat that bread. Then he tells him to jump off the highest point of the temple. He says, can't you just have the angels kind of miraculously come along and catch you? Like, like Jesus, just perform a trick that's going to be really cool to see. Oh, it's the lust of the eyes. And finally, the devil takes Jesus up to a very high mountain and he offers him all the kingdoms of the world. All the power and the authority and the prestige. You could say the pride of life. And each time, of course, when tempted, Jesus responds with quoting the scriptures. He responds with the word of God. He rebukes the enemy with the truth of God's word. What a great example for each each and every one of us. That when we face temptation, how do we stand strong? By the word of God. Temptation, I always say, is an equal opportunity to do good or to do wrong. It's like when you're dieting and one of your coworkers brings in donuts. <laughs> like, why couldn't you have done that last week when I was just free for all in it? But now I'm on a diet and all of a sudden all these good things start to pop up. When the coworker brings in donuts and you've, you've said you're going to diet, you've got a choice to make. You're going to stand strong and just gnaw on your carrot, watching them enjoy the donuts. Or are you going to say, thank you for bringing this in. You know what? I'm going to count this as a blessing from the Lord. (laughs) Uh, It's like the guy who he was trying to lose weight and he decided it's going to be best to stay away from the bear claws that just call to him. There's a local bakery that makes the best. And so he's going to stay away. But he shows up at work one morning. He's got a whole box of bear claws. He had asked his coworkers to help him hold him accountable. They go, Dude, what's going on here? Why do you have the bear claws? He goes, no, 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 no. This is different. He says, I I prayed about it, and I believe God wants me to have these bear claws. 
kind of hard to argue with that. Okay, but they're like, could you, could you explain that to us? He's like, yeah, well, I was driving past the bakery, and I saw they had just made fresh bear claws. And so I said, Lord, if you want me to have the bear claws, open up a parking spot right in the front of the store. His coworkers were like, yeah, but that's such a busy area of town. There was a parking spot right in the front of the store. He goes, yeah, I mean, not the first time around the block, but after 10 times, it was. So God wants me to eat these bear claws. Don't put yourself in situations where you know you're going to be tempted. Right? Doesn't our Lord Jesus teach us to pray, lead us not into temptation? So God's will and God's heart and God's help does lead us in his paths of righteousness and not into places of temptation. So I want to make this clear. It's not a sin to be tempted, but it is very foolish to put yourself in temptation's path and you have an equal opportunity to do good or to do evil. And, and really with that, then we can recognize that every temptation is an invitation to depend on Christ. Why don't we start looking at it that way, friends? Not, oh man, there's another temptation. Oh man, it's the, I'm just getting blasted from every, every place today. Look at those as an invitation to say, another temptation. Okay, Jesus, I need you. And I hear you. And this is an invitation for me to depend on you. Lord, help me to be strong. And in those places, we can have victory. But I wouldn't stand here before you this morning and suggest that we can have victory in every area, every day, all day, through the rest of our lives. It's a struggle. Every day it's a struggle. Who's going to be in control, my flesh or the spirit of God that indwells me? Every day it's a struggle. And so we don't always have victory, do we? You were awfully silent on that one. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about sin. I want to make this clear this morning. We're pointing out some observations from Genesis chapter 3. To sin is to believe the lie that God is not good. So ultimately, every time we do sin, we give in to the temptation, we've been deceived. Just like Eve, we're deceived. We're listening to the wrong voice. And by doing so, we're really making a claim against the character of God. I'm not sure if I can trust you in what you said, God. That's essentially what Adam and Eve are saying. I'm not sure you really have my best interest at heart, God, because that fruit looks awfully tasty. And I would simply say to you, God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And so when God lovingly guides us and we don't quite understand why he's placed us on a path that has pain and hardship and we're tempted to go our own way. it becomes an issue of faith. And by the way, let's just explore that a little bit, shall we? Like, what happens when we go our own way? Anybody in here willing to admit to going your own way sometimes? You're not real engaged right now. No one's willing to admit that you've gone your own way sometimes. How did that work out for you? I kind of wish we could just spend the rest of the morning in here talking through this. Forego our Sunday school hour. And just get real. <laughs> and just be vulnerable and just be open. How did that work out for us? When we said, ah, I, I think I'm going to do, do this because that's going to be the best thing for me. 
rather than, okay, God, I, this seems like it's hard. This is painful. This isn't what I, I would have dreamed up, but your will be done, oh God. Because that's the path of abundant life. That's the path of hope and joy and peace and all the fruits of the Spirit and the life lived with Christ. But what good news that even after we mess up, even after we sin, we do wrong, God is still good. God is still merciful. God is faithful. And so we see that in this story in Genesis chapter 3, that even when Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, they do wrong. They, they willingly disobey. They go against what God has instructed them to do. He pursues them. Yes, there's a curse. I want to be clear about that. Like, there is a curse that flows from their sin. But honestly, even as we look at the curse that comes following the sin, God did it in a way that really more clearly reveals our need for him. Even in the curse, God is gracious. Pain in childbirth? Hey, parents need to know right from the jump, we can't do this without God's help. Right from the start, oh Lord, I'm terrified. We need to know right from the beginning, God, we need you and we are desperate. We cannot do this without your help. Thorns and thistles, the brokenness that we see in the world. I, I think it's those very things that remind us that there's something wrong and therefore it's beyond our control and we stand in need of a savior. Even in the curse, God is gracious to us. And God's desire in his heart, and this is clear throughout the entirety of scripture, is that we return to him. We sin, we mess up, we make mistakes, but God's heart is come back to the father. Find your hope in him. James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And really, that's, how we, that's part of how we stand strong in the face of temptation, is we submit to God. We say, God, I need you. I can't do right. I can't do, make the right choice here. I need help. God, I believe that you're good, that you're kind, that you're filled with compassion and slow to anger and abounding in love. And so I choose to believe that, God, you are who you say you are. And by the way, I'm not going to listen to snakes. I'm, I'm going to be really clear on which voices speak into my life and my heart. Yeah, to sin is to believe the lie. That God is not good. But there's good news. That God's grace is greater than our sin. So what we see there is God pursues Adam and Eve. He shows his never-ending love and grace. Adam and Eve are hiding, right? We talked about that. But God goes for a walk and calls out to them. <laughs> where are you? This is verse 9, Genesis chapter 3. Where are you? Now, do you think God didn't know where they were? He knew exactly where they were. He wasn't legitimately asking for their location. Where are you? He's, this is an invitation for them to respond to God's unconditional pursuit of them. Even in the midst of our colossal failures, God lovingly pursues us and God invites us back to himself. He says, where are you? To the crown jewel of his creation. We see also, he declares this, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. It's when he's cursing the serpent. That although, although there's going to be this ongoing struggle, as I've said, we live in a broken world, we face temptations at every turn, the woman's offspring will crush the serpent's head. It's a reference to Jesus. 
It's really the first reference to the gospel that we have in the Bible. There is good news that Christ will have victory over the enemy. Yes, we have a spiritual enemy, an adversary. He tries to thwart us. He tries to cause us to go into rebellion against God just as he did. Remember, that's his story. That's, that's, that's his story of he was with God in heaven, created as a celestial being. And yet, his pride, his sin, led him to be cast out. And he just wants us to do the same thing. He wants us to follow suit and be like him. So yes, we have a spiritual enemy, but we also have an all-powerful, all-knowing creator God. Here's what Romans 5.20 says. But where sin increased, God's grace increased even more. Isn't that good news? God's grace is greater than our sin. Listen, it's not as if humanity is getting any better. There, there are certain people who fall into this humanist camp that think, like, we'll just learn from past mistakes, and we'll just start getting better, and we'll start getting closer to God. It's like, we really don't have time this morning to preach through Genesis chapter 4, but let me just share with you. So we see this, the very first people created, they don't last very long, and they mess up, and they sin in Adam and Eve. In chapter 4, what happens is, their two boys, Cain and Abel, and you know their story. <laughs> Like, humanity takes a really sharp, steep dive into sin and depravity when Cain murders his brother Abel. In fact, in, in chapter 4 and verse 7, the Lord says to, to Cain, Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. God gives him this warning, just like we've heard today. Temptations around every corner, but we can stand strong. Unfortunately, the very next verse is when it says he attacks his brother. And we've just been in this struggle against sin and temptation ever since. So no, we cannot be free from sin's effect. We live in a broken world. We face temptations at every turn, but we can be on guard against it. Be on guard, keeping watch. And with the help of Christ, our Redeemer, yes, we can make godly choices. We can make choices that honor our Creator. And when we trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, Christ is in us, the scriptures say. So what that means is, when we are weak, his strength is made perfect in us. The Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. For when I am weak, we say, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So I want you to hear this this morning. You fellow brother or sister in Christ, you believer who's trusted in the shed blood of Christ. That Christ in you is more powerful than any wrong desire that pops up. Christ in you. So every time you're tempted, God is inviting you through Christ to trust in Jesus. And he'll set you free. Ephesians 6.12 tells us very clear that our struggle isn't against flesh and blood. It's against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so if we want to stand strong there and we want to engage in that battle, we're going to fight, but we're not going to do so with weapons made of this world. We're going to do so by clinging desperately to the word of God. Our God is stronger than our enemy. Greater is he who is in me, the scriptures say than he who is in the world. 
And so we learn from the stories that we see in Genesis chapters 3 and 4. We identify with the struggles we see there. And all the more reason why we say, thank you, oh God, for your great salvation and your master plan to bring redemption to all who trust in you. Let's pray together. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you this morning, freely confessing that we have gone astray, just like the Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. But you, our good and loving shepherd, the one who the scriptures say is the shepherd of our souls, you pursue us. Even when we foolishly flee from you, you come after us and you won't stop. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for your pursuit in our lives. And yes, Lord, we intercede for those friends and family members who have strayed from you. And we long to see them come back in loving relationship with you. God, don't give up on them. And bring them to our minds that we might continue to persistently pray. So thank you, Lord, for this good news that although we live in a fallen world, we serve a great God who is able to you be the honor and the glory and the power forever and ever. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.